Take your seats. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as always, let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer before we get going. Uh, Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Just uh, excited to see what you have to say in your word today, that we may truly grow in our walks and our relationships with you. And Lord, we just ask for your blessing upon us. And as always, Lord, we pray for our men and women serving in the field. Keep them safe. Bring them home safe. We pray for godly wisdom and direction for our nation and ears to hear you speaking to us. And Lord, we just ask that you go before all things in your name. Amen. Alrighty, 2 Timothy chapter 3. A little bit of a change of pace this morning. We've been in 2 Timothy here for about the last month or so, and we've always been talking about this letter as Paul's final epistle, his, his epistle from prison where he's awaiting his execution. And we've talked about how the key points of this epistle has always been encouragement and strength during difficult times. A little bit of change of direction here. We're going to talk about end times, end times a little bit this morning, which works out good because we just finished a study on Wednesdays of 2 Thessalonians. And we've been talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ, the tribulation period, the rise of the Antichrist, and what all that means. And we've been in 2 Timothy 3 a lot because we've talked about and intertwined those messages, which is a good stepping stone because starting this coming Wednesday, we're actually going to be starting the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. So excited to see what God has to say in there. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a chapter devoted to what's it going to be like as the world comes to an end. And what has happened here is... When the fall of man happened with Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. And at that time, God did not judge the world. He let the world go, if you will. But for 6,000 years, we've been building up this debt of sin that cannot be paid, and eventually it reaches a point where Jesus Christ returns. And he says, I'm taking back this planet from the sin. My death on the cross covered this, and I'm reclaiming this world as my father's. You know, we sing that hymn, This is My Father's World. The truth of the matter is the Bible says that Satan is the God of this age right now. Because not because God is not powerful, it's not because the Lord can't take care of Satan, it's because the Lord has stepped back and said, okay, mankind, you want to let sin rule and reign? This is what happens when you have a world, world ruled and reigned by sin. And so as we reach the end, and this is what it's talking about here in chapter 3, is the end times is what the Bible says, we see this all coming to a head. Now, as always, when we're talking about end times, it sure looks like things are coming together, and it sure looks like things could be soon, but we're not making any type of proclamation. It could happen now. In an instant, it could happen in a week, in a year, in 10 years, 100 years. We don't know when. But the Lord says that we need to be prepared for it. And this is why it's important to have a balance. And this is what we've been talking a lot in our study in Thessalonians. So there's usually extremes. You have the one extreme where they want to stick their head in the sand and say, I don't want to worry about it. I'm not going to be here for this. I don't want to know anything about this. So just let me live my happy, peaceful life. The Bible says we're supposed to have a good knowledge of these things and not be ignorant of this stuff, hence God writing these chapters. But then you also have the other extreme where the only thing they think about and focus about is this end time stuff. And instead of going out there being a light and a witness for Jesus Christ, the only thing they're focusing on is the world ending. We need to have that balance. We know he's returning. We know the world is going to come to an end. We know that because we've studied out the Bible. But yet until that time comes, the verse that I always go back to says, Occupy till I come. Live the Christian life. Be that light and a witness. And realize we need to have a working knowledge and understand what it means for the end to come. And this is what we're going to talk about a little bit here today. And obviously we'll get into more detail as we start Revelation on Wednesday. So with that being said, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But know that this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. 
That's the description of what it's going to be like as we get to the end. That word, in my translation, says perilous times will come. That word literally means stressful, hard to bear. It's a stressful time out there now, isn't it? It's a stressful time to try to be a Christian family in this very difficult, dark world. You know, people every now and then will get a hold of me and say, can you believe what they showed on TV? Yeah, I, I probably can because it's a hard, stressful time. Can you believe what they're saying? Can you believe what they're doing in school? Can you believe this? Can you believe that? Fill in the blank. Well, the Bible says it's a perilous time. It's a stressful time. It's hard to bear. And the problem is we get worked up about it being bad. Well, the truth of the matter is it's going to get bad. Now, this doesn't mean we throw our hands up in the air and just say, I'm quit, I'm done. No, we keep fighting the good fight. That's what we're going to get into next week a little bit, is you fight the good fight till the end. But we also understand that there is this sin problem that's only going to be dealt with when Jesus returns. But until that time, we still fight for the truth. We fight for what's right. The verse I always like to go back to in situations like this, when you kind of look around and you kind of think, I just can't handle this anymore. The world is really going downhill. Galatians 6, 9 let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I love that verse. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. See, the problem is we grow weary while doing good. We, we don't like the fact of being the minority in the world today in our beliefs and our moral standards. We don't like that, and so we get tired of it. We're tired of constantly being attacked. We're tired of constantly saying, well, we shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. We grow weary in doing good. And God says, don't give up, especially as you get down to the end and you see it getting worse. He goes, don't give up. The Bible uses this word endure, endure. And we're supposed to stay strong. It is tough. It is hard to bear. It is stressful. But why is it? Well, look at the first description there in verse 2. Men will be lovers of themselves. Is that not the picture-perfect way to describe society today. Lovers of themselves. Generally, as a society, we only care about ourselves. One of my pastor friends uses this phrase a lot. He says that we have an epidemic of ingrown eyeballs. The only thing we see is us. And there's this mentality of it's all about me. I, you hear these phrases all the time. I'm finally going to do what makes me happy. I've spent my whole life living for others, and now I'm finally going to live for myself. Lovers of themselves. And this is what happens is when we quit putting others before us, we only start thinking about us, we become a very selfish, self-centered society. And when you become selfish and self-centered, marriages fall apart, lives fall apart, relationships fall apart. That's not the way it's supposed to be when we only love ourselves. Someone sent me this quote one time, and I love it. It's from Benjamin Franklin. He who falls in love with himself will have no rivals. I thought, isn't that true? He who falls in love with himself will have no rivals. If the only thing you're thinking about is you, no one's really going to fight you on that one. Turn, if you will, to Philippians real quick. Because as we look at what the world has to say about this, well, we also have to look at what the Christ response to this is. Because as we look at the world falling apart, well, what's our job as Christians? Well, we're not supposed to love ourselves. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the mindset we're supposed to have, is not look out for the interests of ourselves, but for the interests of others. Esteem others better than himself. I remember as a kid, sitting down at the church I used to go to in the basement, going through CBC, the same program we do out here, and they put this acronym up on the board, and I've never forgot it, and it was JOY. And it stood for Jesus, others, you. And what a mindset to have. It goes Jesus first, then others, then you. But we don't do that too often, do we? We usually go yaj, you know, or you, others, Jesus. I don't know what that would even be. 
problem is we don't think about others. Christianity in its entirety is I love you enough to put your interests, your problems, your concerns in front of mine. I've shared with you this shirt that I bought years ago, and it's a sarcastic shirt. And the shirt says, let me drop everything and work on your problem. And it's a sarcastic shirt. I got it because I like it. Isn't that what Christianity is supposed to be? Let me drop whatever I'm doing and let me focus on what's going on in your life because I love you enough. And that's the example that we're supposed to see. Jesus said, put others first. Then build on this. Stay in Philippians and look what he says. Verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Is that not the picture of service? Putting others first? Can you imagine Christ getting ready to go to the cross and saying, No, no. For 33 years, I've served everybody else. I'm only going to think about myself now. No. He went to the point of death on the cross. He served till his death happened. That's the example that God has given us, is that we're supposed to love God, and that love for God affects the way we treat and act others. We're a very selfish society. Well, that's exactly what the Lord said would happen. Lovers of themselves. Let's move on here. Look at the next one. Lovers of money. Pretty straightforward one, isn't it? First John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world. That word for world is the Greek word cosmos, which means the world system. This world system that we have is really built off greed and money, isn't it? God says you're not supposed to love this system, this world system. It's all about money. Look around the world today. Is this not world all about money? All about money. People that have no understanding or grasp any concept of finances can tell you if the stock market went up or down. We know about money. Everything we do is revolving around money. God says, lovers of money, that's one of the signs of the end times. Boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Go to any public place. Go to Walmart, go to the mall, go anywhere, and you will see society being disobedient to parents. It, it is unbelievable what you see in a public setting with kids. I, you know, just recently I've seen the mom just screaming at her children using language I can't believe. I've seen the other parents pleading with their kids for obedience. Please just, just, just do this. I, can, I, can, I cannot handle this today. Please. We talk about this phrase, a kid-run house. You see this breakdown in the family. When you have the breakdown in the family, and you also have the breakdown in society, they're tied together. When the family breaks down, the society breaks down. It's not a coincidence, and I just wrote this down off the top of my head. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, Titus 2, all chapters devoted to how the family is supposed to be run. God wants the system of the family to be a picture of organization and actually a picture of Jesus Christ. So when you see the breakdown in the family here of disobedience to parents, that's a sign of the end. Kids are tough. One of my favorite quotes about kids... It's from Irma Bombeck. It says, When my kids become wild and unruly, I use a nice, safe playpen. When they're finished, I climb out. And I thought, (laughs) isn't that the truth sometimes? Isn't that the truth? That that there's almost this, this fear of the kids. Where there's supposed to be this system. And as you see the end times coming, you see that disobedience the parents. Moving on there, you see the unthankful, the unholy. Verse 3 is a picture-perfect verse of just relationships. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good. Well, that's relationships in the world today. Unloving, unforgiving. People that just hold anger and bitterness and resentment towards others because of hurts and wrongs that's happened in the past. Slanderers, without self-control. That's just a picture of society. For anybody that works out there in the secular world, you know that. You know what that's like. And it's amazing 
how you see these people holding grudges and bitterness and holding unforgiveness towards situations that happened years ago, years ago. And, and I hate to say this, but the truth is we're not immune to this in the body of Christ. I know people that come up and talk about they love the Lord and I believe they love the Lord too. But my goodness, they're still holding unforgiveness towards something, towards somebody that happened years ago. Christ set the example of forgiveness and we need to make sure that we don't get into verse 3 of being unloving, unforgiving, slanderous. We want our relationships not to have hearts of unforgiveness and hearts of bitterness. Because what happens when you have that unforgiveness and bitterness, it takes us right to verse 4. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, Your translations may read a little different there. My translation for headstrong, that literally means feet first. That's what it literally means. It's headstrong. And, and it carries this example of jumping feet first into something. This is something you see in the end times, is that people don't feel like they have to check in with God anymore. I see people make huge life decisions. Who to date, who to marry, where to move, where to live, changing jobs. And they, and they do it without once ever stopping and saying, Lord, what do you think? Why? Because we're headstrong. Well, I already know what's right. I can take care of myself. Boy, the one thing you see from Genesis to Revelation is we really don't know what we're doing as human beings. We really don't. And so since we don't know what we're doing as human beings, in fact, the book of James calls us vapors. We're here for a little while and then we disappear. He says you need to seek the Lord on those things. We don't want to be headstrong. Head first. This is what I've seen. When somebody does not seek God on life decisions and just goes in biz headstrong, feet first, it almost always runs into problems. And to be quite honest, then they get mad at God for a decision that they made. Next word there in verse 4, haughty. That word literally means wrapped in a mist. Wrapped in a mist because their pride keeps them from seeing everything. Their pride is like this mist that's fog that comes up and clouds their whole view. So they're walking around in this spiritual fog because of pride saying, I know what to do. I know what I should be doing. But yet they're not seeking the Lord. And so they're walking around with a two-hour fog delay, spiritually speaking here. But yet they're still trying to make decisions and live. That's one of the signs of the end times. It's this haughtiness, this pride, this headstrong. And the last one, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, I don't know how many times I've heard, I know that I'm wrong, but... You've heard me say this before. What could you possibly say after that sentence to justify that action? I know that I'm wrong, but... But what? Basically, we'd rather choose the pleasures of sin over the pleasures of God. Now, here's the thing about sin. If sin wasn't tempting and pleasurable, it wouldn't be a temptation, now would it? I know sometimes people get frustrated about saying, well, sin is pleasurable. Well, if something's not pleasurable, I generally don't want to do it. The Bible talks about the passing pleasures of sin. The problem is with sin, it's a pleasurable moment followed by spiritual regret, shame, and conviction. It's never worth it. It's never worth it. And so what happens is people choose that moment of pleasure and then let go of their relationship with God. I know people like that. They're in a season of life right now where they're not living where the Lord wants them to live. And they're choosing the pleasures of sin rather than loving God. And you know what? I know I'm wrong. I don't know what to say back to that. If the Holy Spirit's already convicted you of that being wrong, then what it is is just rebellion. Now, God loves you and we love you. But one of the signs of the end times here in verse 4 is choosing pleasure rather than choosing God. And really what it comes down to is verse 5. They have a form of godliness, denying its power from such people turn away. A form of godliness, an appearance of godliness. This is something that you see in the church in America today. Is there not a form of godliness in the church? There's an appearance of it. Typical Sunday morning, there will be people all over the nation coming together to church. There's a form of godliness. There's an appearance. Now, is there really a relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't know. There's a lot of religion. There's really not a relationship a lot of time. We're a very religious society. In fact, one translation actually translates verse 5 as saying they will act religious. 
oh, there's a lot of religion today. But religion and relationship are two totally different things. Religion is man's attempt at God of being moral, being good, but relationships is Christ coming into your life and making those changes. There's a very religious spirit in the world today, a very religious spirit. See, that's the thing is we usually think of end times and the world coming to an end. We don't really think of religion. You know, God has been pushed off to the side. As you study, especially the book of Revelation, you see there's a very religious spirit in the world. You know, when the Antichrist comes in and rises into power, he's going to be a very religious type person. He's not going to have a true relationship with God by any means, but he will be a very religious person. We know this in politics. Next year is a presidential election. You and I both know that every single candidate running for office is going to name drop God left and right. It's a very religious thing. It's a form of godliness, and it's an appearance of godliness. In fact, the Bible uses the word hypocrite, which literally means in the Greek, actor. We act like Christians. We come to church, we carry our Bibles, we act like we have that relationship with the Lord. But the truth of the matter is that relationship with the Lord is really a religious thing. Turn if you go to Matthew 7. Let's build on this. One of, one of the toughest things that Jesus ever said is in Matthew chapter 7. And it's tough to swallow. That's one of those verses that I usually joke I wish wasn't in there. But it's in there. Matthew chapter 7, please. Jesus has some pretty straightforward words here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a powerful statement. These people are doing amazing miracles in the name of Jesus, casting out demons, prophesying wonders, etc. And Jesus says, you don't know me. Now think about that one for a second. Doesn't the same thing happen today? People serve in the back in Sunday school. They serve up front worship. They serve all these other different places, but yet they don't really know Jesus. They have a relationship. They have a form of godliness. They have an appearance. But it's a very religious type mindset where that relationship is not there. The last thing the church needs is more religion. The last thing we need. Here's a quote that I like to share a lot, and I've actually shared this before. Listen to this. It says, The national government, the national government seeing in Christianity the unshakable foundation of the moral and ethical life of our people attaches the utmost importance to the cultivation and maintenance of the friendliest relations with the Holy Church. One more time. The national government, seeing in Christianity the unshakable foundation of the moral and ethical life of our people, attaches the utmost importance to the cultivation and maintenance of the friendliest relationship with the Holy Church. So Christianity, according to this person, is the unshakable foundation of the moral and ethical life of our people. Great statement. You know who made that quote? It was Hitler that made that quote. Hitler. Now, I'm not good in world history. I don't think Hitler makes too many top ten lists for, for being good. The point is, there was a form of godliness. Hitler knew when he was combining power back there in the 30s that, you know what, you can't get up there and say the church. Forget the church. He had to play along. Christianity, the unshakable foundation of the moral and ethical life of our people. And Hitler went ahead and green-lighted the extermination of six million Jews. That is a form of godliness, but denying it's power. That is what we're talking about here. And this is what happens in the end times is there's very religious people. This is one of the things that I've talked about. It is easier to witness and share Christ with somebody who basically has very limited knowledge on the Bible than to go and share Christ with somebody who is very religious. I, I, I used to go to church all the time. I was raised in a church. Yeah, I, I know everything you're talking about. Yep, I know. 
If you know, then why isn't it impacting your life? And I don't say that judgmentally. I don't say that attacking. I say that because I care enough about you that I want it to change your life. I want it to bless you. That's the thing. Is I always look at some of these families and marriages and relationships, and I think, God has so much in store for you. So much. We just got to want it. The problem is sometimes we don't want it. We just like our form of godliness, our appearance of it, without having that real solid foundation. So what happens then? Why does this happen? Look at verse 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, this is what happens. There's people that have a great working knowledge of the Bible. I I can think of two individuals that I've I've met over the years that that had an amazing knowledge of God's Word. I mean, just a mind-blowing knowledge of Scriptures and God's Word, but yet, in a non-judgmental way, there really wasn't a relationship with Jesus Christ. But there was knowledge. And you see that in verse 7. Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Always reading, always studying, but yet they're reading and studying for the sake of knowledge, not to go deeper in their walk with the Lord. You've heard us say this before when it comes to teaching and devotions, etc. You never want to treat it as homework. I've got to read so much today. You don't got to read anything. No one's going to make you get up tomorrow morning and pray. No one's going to make you get up tomorrow and read. No one's going to make you stay here. Then why am I here? <laughs> Hopefully because you want to. Hopefully there's a desire to want to go deeper. I know people that sometimes read the Bible because it's a fascinating book. Well, I'm glad they're reading the scriptures. God's word doesn't return void, but the truth of the matter is I want people to read and pray because they desire to know more of Jesus. The desire to have a deeper, closer relationship with him because we can have knowledge without a relationship. We can know things but not know it. So, always learning but never able to come to knowledge. That's the one thing that you see in the end times is an increase in knowledge. And that's sure out there when it comes to God. I think in the nation that we live in, we're very blessed to live in this nation with the openness to meet right now and talk about Christ openly. But I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody in America that has never heard about God or Jesus. And they may not have heard a lot about him, but they at least heard of God and Jesus. There is at least a knowledge there. They don't know the truth, the truth of Scriptures. And look at the next one here. Look at verse 9. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest all as theirs also was. So they know it, they have a knowledge, there's no progression. There's no progression. Somebody sent me this quote one time that I absolutely love. You can know the law by heart without knowing the heart of it. Isn't that the truth? The Pharisees and the Sadducees back during Jesus' time were the most intelligent men of the time. They understood the scriptures, they understood the law, but yet their heart was not impacted or changed by Christ. And this is what happens. Verse 7, they have knowledge, but they don't have knowledge of the truth. Verse 9, there's no progression. If you're still over there in Matthew 7, just jump up a few verses to Matthew 7, verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15. It talks about this idea of not progressing. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. God says actions and time will reveal people's heart. Is there progress? Are you growing? I would hope that there is a spot where you can stop and look in the spiritual mirror and say, Okay, Lord, I'm growing in you. And I don't mean that egotistically. I don't mean that cocky. But you can stop and say, there are changes in my life. I've shared this with you before, and I'm assuming just like your kids, we have in the one closet at our house, the little marks on how much the boys have grown. And you go in there every now and you mark, and you can see progress. They're growing. Spiritually, can you look at yourself in the spiritual mirror and say, okay, I'm growing in the Lord. 
Not pat myself on the back for it, but Lord, it's so neat to see changes happening. Where if that would have happened, I don't know, last year at work, that guy probably would have left with two black eyes from me. Hey, I'm not hitting anybody anymore. I don't know, something like that. You're growing. You're not allowing yourself to get into those arguments. You're not allowing yourself to let the flesh get the best of you. You find yourself making progress. See, the problem is in the end times, there's a lot of people that have knowledge, but no progress. There's no growth. And this is something that I, I tell you, when I first started out here 12 years ago, when I would have taught this, I would have taught it differently. I didn't see that. It's only been in the last decade that I've really seen people just completely come almost to a spiritual stall in their lives for almost no reason. They're just chugging along, and all of a sudden they just disappear spiritually. There's no progress. And you sit there, and I tell you, as a pastor, I used to try to go push them along, pull them along, force them along, guilt them along, fill in the blank. If they want to come along, they're going to come along. There's nothing you can do about that. But it hurts. It hurts when you see somebody just spiritually stall right in front of your face. There's nothing you can do. They have to want it. One of the signs of the end times is this no progress spiritually. You see it happening. So what do we do? What's our response to this? The world's falling apart. It's stressful. It's hard to bear. Morally difficult. Spiritually difficult. You can see this whole thing happening in front of you. What's our response? Look at verse 10. Our first response. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Paul says right there in verse 10, you followed me, you watched me. One of the verses that just blows my mind in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1, it's such a simple verse. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. You realize what that verse means? Imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. I, I usually tell people, don't imitate me. Paul says, no, imitate me. Is that being cocky? Is that being confident? I mean, is that being egotistical? No, it's him saying, imitate me because I know I'm following Jesus, so therefore by you following me, you're actually following Christ. What a statement to be made. That's a huge statement. Because a lot of times what we do as parents and as believers is we usually point people towards Jesus, but we say, hey, don't, don't, don't look at me. I want to be able to say that. I really want to be able to tell people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But there's so much sin in our lives, isn't there? We had a situation recently where um, I took the boys. We were over in Bluffton. And uh, we are at the McDonald's over there in Bluffton. They had this wonderful play area. So we took the boys into the play area. And Dawn and I are sitting there watching them play. And the boys are up in that play area with all the tubes. And they said, Daddy, come on up. So I said, I'll come on up. One of the rules is with the play area is what? You have to take your shoes off, right, at those McDonald's play areas. And so the boys took their shoes off so they can go up there and play, but I didn't take my shoes off. You know how disgusting those tubes are? I'm not, I don't want any part of my body touching. I feel like I have to drench myself in sanitizer when you get done. So I didn't take my shoes off. Went up there and played with him. Kenan, number three, who's three years old, looked at me and goes, Daddy, you didn't take your shoes off. And I said, no, I didn't. He goes, the rules say you have to take your shoes off. He's right. So what did I say? I said, well, the rule doesn't apply to Daddy. That's my, that's my, my, my response. <laughs> Which I had someone come up to me after the first surface and said, you, you know you're lying to your kid. And I said, yeah, but I said, um, I have a form of godliness. You know, I don't know. I'm just kidding. So, I, you know, the rule. The rule says take your shoes off. Daddy didn't take his shoes off. It's amazing what kids notice and kids catch. That hypocrisy. You and I all know there's hypocrisy in this world. Today it's left and right. We don't want to be the hypocrites. I tell you this, if you look at the needs of the church in America... We don't need more stagnant Christians. We don't need more lukewarm Christians. We don't need more hypocrites. We're completely booked with all of those. 
What we need is more people on fire for Jesus Christ that want to see their lives and their families and workplaces changed. That's what we need. And so what happens is, can we say, verse 10, you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith. Wow. I want to be able to say that. God, help us to truly say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's not being cocky. That's not being prideful. It's I want to be such an example of Jesus in all I do or say that people can look at me but see Jesus. That's what we want. So that's the first one. How do we respond to end times? Is be a light and a witness. Whatever place you're in. If you're in school, be an on-fire Christian and a student or a teacher for those kids that you're around all the time. Amen for Christians in the public school system. If you're at work, go out there and shine for Christ in all you do at your workplace. Or whatever it is, if you're raising kids, if you're at home, or whatever your circle of influence you're in, you want to show the love of Jesus in all you do and say. We have an opportunity to make an eternal difference. So that's the first thing we can do, is be an example. Well, the next one comes down to God's Word. Look at verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Guys, just look around. Is there not evil men and impostors left and right? Is there not spiritual deception left and right? There is so much junk out there when it comes to false teaching and false religion. It's all over the place. How do we know the true from the false then? Well, verse 14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing them from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does it always come down to? Knowing your Bible. It always comes down to God's Word. That is why we do verse-by-verse teaching out here. That's why we have all these small groups of Bible studies. That's why we do all this stuff is because it comes down to God's Word. If, If someone came up to you and said, what's Pastor James like? What's Harvest Fellowship like? And you said sarcastically, the only thing he ever does is talk about God's Word. I would be thrilled. Mock me, make fun of me all you want for constantly telling you to be in God's Word because that is what it comes down to. Verse 13, if there's evil men and imposters out there trying to deceive you, you need the truth, the scriptures. Verse 14, you continue in them. You learn. You know, when we studied Titus a while ago, we talked about one of the purposes of the church. In 1 Timothy, the purpose of the church is for you to come and be instructed in God's word, for you then to leave and then go out to the world and make a difference. Too often we get church backwards. The purpose of church is for you to come, learn, grow, be fed, encouraged, edified, and go out and tell people about the Lord. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to instruct you in God's Word. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4, which we're going to get into next week. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Because look at verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to fables. Right now, it's amazing how people say, fine, that's not what I want to hear. I'm just going to go someplace else. God said that's what's going to happen. When you speak the truth, the truth reveals. The truth is shining a light in that dark area that neither you want to see nor I want to see. But God says it needs to be revealed to be fixed. People don't want that. So therefore they run, they hide. But God says we need to stay true, we need to stay strong, we need to stay in God's word. Because why? 
We continue in it, verse 14 of chapter 3. We learn it. Especially look at verse 15, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. You've heard me say this a lot. Parents, if you have kids at home, you have such an opportunity to ingrain God's Word into them. My goodness, what a difference that makes. That's why one of the things that we do out here with nearly any children's ministry we do, we try to make it scripturally based, obviously, but scripturally focused. That they're learning God's Word because that's what's going to make a difference. What does the Scriptures do, verse 15? It makes you wise in salvation. Why is it salvation? We've shared this example out here before. So often when it comes to people sharing a testimony, the testimonies we get excited about are the testimonies where the person is the most worthless person in the world. They're doing time in jail. They're killing people left and right. They're having all these problems. And then they have this miraculous moment where they come and know Jesus Christ. And those are the testimonies we tear up on, we clap on, and we say, wow, what a testimony. Then somebody gets up and says, I don't know, I was raised in a Christian home my whole life. I accepted Jesus at 6 in Sunday school, and I've been walking with Christ ever since. And we sit there saying, how boring. You didn't kill anybody? That's not a testimony. Where actually, that's the most amazing testimony in the world. Amen to be raised in a godly home, to accept Christ early, to stay out of the problems of the world, the filth, and you've known the scriptures from childhood, verse 15? That's the testimony I like to hear. But see, how does that happen? It happens by having parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and Sunday school teachers and and teachers in all areas of life to stop and say, I understand the importance of ingraining Jesus into whatever kids I'm around. You may not have children, but there are lots of children in this church. You may not serve in the back, but you will see these children walking by you. This is why we do the dedications publicly. It's because you will see these kids, hopefully for the next 10, 15, 20 years out here, and you can make a spiritual impact in their lives. Scriptures, and even as adults, Scripture is so vital. Absolutely vital. What does it do for us as adults? Look at verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We believe and teach from Genesis to Revelation. This is God's Word, no question about it. So therefore, if this is God's Word, this is what we want to study. If, if God chose thousands of years ago to use the instrument of the Bible to get truth across to us, then that's what we need to be in. That's the instrument He chose. He chose to write down these um, situations and scenarios and, and, and I use the word story but I mean story is a factual thing in the Old Testament and these epistles and doctrine he says this is what I want you to learn to grow in this all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable it's profitable you will be blessed by spending time in the word you will grow in it there's no doubt about that I, I firmly believe it's profitable it's amazing going back to our point that we made earlier that the society today is a lover of money I tell you spending some time in God's word is the most the best investment you can ever make People that don't have any concept, no concept whatsoever of finances, stock markets, whatever, all know about profit. But yet, what about spiritual, being spiritually profitable? That's what matters. And how are we profitable? First off, we have doctrine. Now, all of your translations worded a little differently, but the first one here is doctrine. Doctrine is foundational truths. Truths. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus was born of the virgin. The Bible is God's holy world. We only have entrance into heaven through the blood of Christ. Foundational truths of Scripture. We need to understand those. A couple weeks ago, we finished the lesson with three questions that every Christian should be able to know and understand. How does one get into heaven? Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross for our sins? And how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know these things? Those are foundational truths that are doctrine that we need to know. The problem is we look at doctrine and we think, boring. Doctrine is laying that foundation that you have to know. You guys are going to go out in the world. I'm going to go out in the world. There's false deception all over the place. We need to know doctrine. That's the foundation. The next one, reproof. Reproof is correcting wrong behavior. Maybe you need to have reproof right now. Maybe there's something in your life that, that is causing problems. You need to be corrected. 
Maybe you're going to run into somebody that you love them enough that you have to go correct them. That's reproof. And we use God's word to do that. See, the problem is if you don't use God's word, you just sound like you're just picking on everybody. Well, I don't think you should do that. But why don't you think I should do that? Well, I just don't think you should. See, I don't think you should do that because the Bible says this, and I love you enough and I don't want to see you get hurt. Reproof. The next one, correction. Correction then is taking that person and putting them on the right path after the mistakes have been made. What good does it do to correct, to reprove somebody, to rebuke them, if you're not going to help correct them? See, we live in a society today where we're really great on picking out everybody's faults. We're great at rebuking. I know Christians, and it's not a gift of the Spirit, but they sure act like it is. They're wonderful at picking out faults. But then they never do anything to help the person go forward. So we need to reprove, we need to rebuke, but then we need to follow that up with correction. And the last one, instruction in righteousness, which literally means training. And that's what we do a lot on Sunday mornings is training, is to say let's take these truths and apply them to our lives, apply them to our hearts, and be trained. And why do you go through training? So that, that way, when you are going through that training, you are prepared for whatever situation comes up because you've been trained. Hence, verse 2, once again, of chapter 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. I have no idea what this afternoon is going to bring. I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. But I want to be trained and prepared in God's Word so that whatever that phone call is, whatever that situation that pops up, we are ready and able to meet those needs of that person and you're trained in the Word. Because the goal is, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. Some of your translations say perfect, which literally just means complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be ready for whatever comes your way. The analogy I always like to use is imagine having this tool bag. And you have this tool bag filled with all the different tools you need, just like you do in your garage. You need a crescent, you go get the crescent. You need a Phillips screwdriver, you go get it. And the tool bag, whatever job you're facing, you have that tool for it. Same thing spiritually. You're going to go tomorrow and you're going to have a bad day at work. You go into your spiritual tool bag. You grab out, grab out the tool that says, this day shall pass. And you realize, yeah, you're right. This day shall pass. Because how do I know that? Because the Bible says this day shall pass. Then you go into the next day, and next thing you know, you go to the doctor and you get a bad diagnosis. Fear and worry wouldn't take the best of you. So what do you do? You go to your spiritual tool bag, and you realize the Bible says what? Do not worry, do not have fear. God's there in the midst of it. Next thing you know, the next day you're going there, and somebody's starting to ask you questions about Jesus. You go to your spiritual tool bag. You take out the tool that you must be born again, it says the Bible. So you're thoroughly equipped. Whatever situation comes your way, you are thoroughly equipped and ready for it because you've been trained, you've been instructed, and you're ready but it takes effort, it takes work. And to be quite honest, if you look through verses 1 through 9 again of chapter 3, when you're lovers of themselves, last thing you really worry about is taking the time and effort to focus on what God has to say. I highly encourage you. We can really sit here and become a very religious group, a religious church. We can tread water and just buy our time till Jesus returns. Or we can endure have progress, and realize there's more to life than what I'm doing right now, that there's an eternal difference I can make in people's lives because I want to. Why? Because Jesus has made that change in my life, so therefore I want to go make that change in other people's lives. I really want to serve the Lord, and I will tell you the most fulfilling thing you can ever do is spiritually make a difference in people's lives. My goodness, you'll walk away feeling like you've done something. How many times do we do this? We go into work, we spend the day at work, and we come home and say, what did I do today? It's amazing when you make that spiritual difference in someone's life, you think, wow. And it may be as simple as telling somebody, you know what, I'm going to pray for you today. Then you go home and you pray for them. We want to see the world change for the Lord, and we have the answers for that. And that's what we want to do. Marv, you want to come forward here for the final song? Just encourage you. Just encourage you to make that time and effort to realize my example and my time in the Word is absolutely vital. If you don't have any devotions that you're doing right now, or if you want to study just to kind of do on your own, I just want to finish with this. Psalm 119 
Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and what it is, is it takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and talks about a different attribute of God's Word. There's 20, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head, there's 22 sections in Psalm 119. It's a big chapter. I encourage you over this next week, every day, read through three of those sections. And you'll walk away with a deeper, better understanding of God's Word, of the importance of it in your life, the importance of it in you spiritually, because I know you know it, because we preach it at it all the time. I know I need to be in God's Word. I, I was doing a study with somebody one time, and I, he says, he goes, I know what you're going to say. You're, you're going to say, I know I need to be in God's Word, and I know I do. And I asked him why. And he didn't know what to say to that. Because <laughs> you told me to, is what he said. I, I want you to know why. I want you to realize the blessing that comes out of it yourself, and your life, and your marriage, and your family, and your relationships, and your witness. Psalm 119, read through that this week and you will walk away with a better, deeper understanding of what it means to know and have God's word in your life. So without much further ado, we'll get over to you guys for the final song.